This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. Yeah, so don't quit. Uh, and one of the things about, about David is he didn't really ever seem to, although he's got some challenges, and we'll look at those in weeks to come, he didn't quit on his dreams. He didn't quit on the things that, that he felt God spoke to him right at the beginning. He didn't get too busy with all the other stuff. And then when he died, think, oh, man, I wish I'd done something significant. I wish I'd done more. You know, you know that story that most people say, well, I, nobody says when they died, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Nobody says, I wish I'd had a nicer sofa, or we wish we'd had better holidays. They, they, they always feel, I wish that I'd spent more time with people. And if you're a Christian, you think, I, I wish I'd pushed into God more. And so that's the, the challenge this morning as we start in a new venue. We say, we want to keep going. We want to be passionate, excited, motivated. We are here because we have got an unrelenting passion. That's what I believe. That's why I'm here. That's why we're here. So, but the thing is, the question would be, well, what was David's unrelenting passion? And if you were here, um, uh, I think in June, uh, end of June, I, I talked, when we first introduced David, I talked about what his unrelenting passion was. Can anyone remember? What was his thing? I asked the question, what kept David as a 15-year-old boy, 12-year-old boy, what kept him awake at night? I said it wasn't Xbox or whether the, this football team were winning or whatever, whether he was going to do well in his, in his GCSEs. What kept David awake at night? Does anyone remember? You don't, do you? I, I, I am aware of how preaching is very much kind of like yesterday's newspaper. Um, so let me remind you. Can you remember? Psalm 132, this is not written by David, but it's written about David. And he says this, he's talking about David when he was young. He says, David swore an oath to Yahweh God or to God Almighty or the Lord. To, I, he made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not go home. I will not let myself rest. I will not let my eyelids sleep nor my close my eyelids in slumber until I, this is what he's after, find a place to build a house for the Lord, a sanctuary for the mighty one of Israel. When I heard that the ark was in Ephrathah, which is like Judah, which is where he was from, Bethlehem and Judah, that when we found it in the different con- distant countryside of kirath Jerom, then let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship the footstool of his throne. Basically, what keeping David alive, uh, awake when he's walking the hills as a a young boy, when he's been a shepherd as a young boy, what he's passionate about, what he's excited about, is he wants to go and worship God. He wants to find the ark of God, and he wants to go and worship God. He wants to, uh, and actually he doesn't want the ark of God, he doesn't want the presence of God to be just something that's just on the sideline. He wants to go and build a place for God. He, 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 he's, I mean, I see him, because I would do, I see him as like a church planter. He says, I want to build a place for God to dwell. I want to build a, a place. Now, obviously, he builds a, uh, he's, he doesn't get to build it, 
but he plans a, a building of stone. But God says, no, I want to build a building of living stones. And so, so there's this passion inside him to build something significant. There's this passion inside him to, 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 to build a place for God. There's a passion inside him to worship God. And, and so I don't think he loses that passion. So it's interesting that if you read Shakespeare, or if you look at Shakespeare, um, obviously I'm not great at Shakespeare, but I like to go watch it. I'm not great at reading it. It feels a bit dry. It's got to be performed. Uh, but if you go to, to watch Shakespeare, I mean Macbeth. Does anyone know the story of Macbeth? Basically, the story of Macbeth is a story of one man's ambition and his manipulation and his witchcraft to have power, to be the king. He's desperate to be the king, and that's, that's what, what eats him up. His wife uh, manipulates to do that, and he wants to be the king. And, and, and that is his whole life, and that ambition destroys him. Or if you read Shakespeare again, Henry the, Henry V, in fact, when his, uh, his father was dying, Henry IV was dying, before he died, the crown had fallen from Henry IV's head and fallen onto the pillow, and Henry V grasped it because he was so eager to rule. And his... The father said something like, the crown doesn't sit so easily on your head. As if, like, it's not so easy. And I don't think David, David's aim is not about himself. It's not about he wants to be this celebrity, he wants to be the hero, he wants to be the king. Even though God has chosen him, even as a little boy, to be king, his aim is not to just be the one. His aim is not to be, get more likes on Facebook. His aim is not to, to, to have more people comment. His aim is not to, to make his way onto a celebrity show. His aim is not even you know, to, to make prime minister. There's, there's, his aim is not about himself. He wants to, to build a, a church for God. And when he, becomes, when he becomes king at the age of 30, you know that, that that is his aim because what he does is really interesting. And we're going to follow through a bit of 2 Samuel 5. It should come up there. And also a bit of 2 Samuel 6. So um, this is uh, 2 Samuel 5. It says, uh, when David was 30 years old, when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years, the king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites. Jebusites are not, uh, not Jews. They're uh, Canaanites, people who lived in the land uh, before the Jews were there, who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you're not going to get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. And there's a great line that says, Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. I uh, read a book through the summer. uh, It's uh, a biography of Jerusalem. Really thick book, but written by a Jewish guy. And um, and it, it talks about the kind of different journeys of Jerusalem and why Jerusalem's significant. But actually, at, that, at David's time, Jerusalem was a, a kind of a small fortress, a, a small, closely guarded fortress that the Jebusites had held for 600 years. And think, well, why does he want to go there? Now, I don't know if you, if you kind of know the geography of, of that area. He was from Judah, which is in the south, Bethlehem. And Saul, who'd been the king before, was from Benjamin. And, and, and and Jerusalem kind of sat just nicely on that line between the two families or the two uh, families. And you think, well, he could have gone there for political reasons. Um, but actually, I think that these reasons for going there were much, much bigger and much, much deeper. And I think our reasons for moving here are not just, oh, it's nicely at the center of town or it's Cheltenham Ladies College as opposed to Pates. I mean, they're both quite good schools and all that. But, but our, our reasons for being here are, are much, much deeper. They're the reasons why we gather here, the reasons why we want to be here are spiritual reasons. And David's got gospel reasons. He's got spiritual reasons why he wants to take Jerusalem. It had never been the capital of Israel before, but yet there's something, some things that happened there that he thought, this means this needs to be the place I'm going to be. Uh, 
so the first, the first thing that I think really got hold of David was in uh, Psalm, he writes about it in Psalm 110, which is the most quoted psalm in, uh, in the New Testament. It's the Old Testament psalm, most quoted in the New Testament, quoted by Jesus. And it says, the Lord said to my Lord, come and sit at my right hand. And that's interesting. The Lord God is saying to God, come and sit at my right hand. And, and he talks about uh, a, a strange guy in there who'd been the king of uh, Jerusalem, a guy called Melchizedek. And you think, you're really thinking, I'm really glad I come now. But Melchizedek was an interesting character because he, in Genesis, he meets Abram and he comes out to meet Abram uh, with an interesting gift. This is, he's called the king of Salem or the king of Shalom, uh, the king of peace, or Melchizedek means the king of righteousness. And he comes out to meet Abram uh, with bread and wine. And he started thinking, king of righteousness, king of Salem, bread and wine. That's interesting. Who is this guy? And it, it, we get a clue. I think it might be up there, actually. We, we get a clue in, in Hebrews. It says that this, uh, this king of righteousness has got no, no beginning. It says the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Also king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without be- beginning of days, without end of life, resembling the son of God. There's interesting that it, it, something like happens in Abraham's life where I think he meets Jesus. Now, it may be one like Jesus, but I think... He, this, he, he meets Jesus, and Jesus comes out to him with, with bread and wine. W- what's going on there? Why don't you turn to your neighbor and think, what's going on there? You kind of know, but it'll engage you. Turn to your neighbor, and you can put the slide up, a place of bread and wine. What's going on there? What's this Melchizedek guy doing? He's called the priest of the most, the priest of most high God. What is he doing? Yes, it's a foretelling of what's going to happen. So obviously we know that bread and wine talks of communion, talks of the Passover meal, uh, and it talks of communion. And it talks of the broken body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. And there was, it's almost like there was this uh, prophetic statement, this statement of this is going to happen in the future. There's going to be a king of Salem, a king of righteousness, a one who's got no beginning and no end, whose b- body's going to be broken outside uh, at this place called Salem, this place that we know as Jerusalem. His body's going to be broken, his blood's going to be shed, and righteousness and peace is going to come. And I think David understood that, because if you read Psalm 110, he understood that. There's a sense where I think David's thinking, what am I about? Where do we want to build this place? Where do we want to build this temple, this Jerusalem? Why do we want to have that? He wanted to build it on the gospel. So as we move to this place, we need to understand we want to build this church on that gospel. We might do it more often. We're going to talk about it at leaders meeting tonight about whether we should break bread more often. Um, so you can come and if you've got opinions on that, you can come speak to me afterwards. But, but that sense of, no, we want to remember this amazing sacrifice. There's a sense of, it's Jesus that we're here for. It's Jesus that we love. We want to build on him. And David is saying, I want to be right at the very center. That place where Jesus was going to go outside the city walls, outside of Jerusalem, and where he was going, his body was going to be broken, and his blood was going to be shed to set us all free, to bring righteousness and peace. And David's saying, that's where I want to be. And that's where we want to be, isn't it? Yeah, that's where we want to be. So it's interesting. But the other, there's another story related to Jerusalem as well, which I think that's a gospel reason why David wanted his capital. Um, you may, you may uh, be more familiar with this than the Melchizedek one, but actually Abraham, when he'd been renamed Abraham, uh, which meant the father of many nations, he got one son called Isaac. Uh, we don't want to 
put it, bring it too, ho- too close to home for the, for the folks this morning. But uh, one son called Isaac. And imagine, Rob, if, uh, if God said, right, you've got one son. And to show that you love me and trust me, I want you to take your son and I want you to take him and kill him. It would be quite hard, wouldn't it? It would be really also super duper duper hard if all your hopes and dreams, all your unrelenting passion was based on this one and you having a kid. God said, take your kid and kill it. Now we know God's not into killing kids. But it's interesting, the story, let's just read it. It's in uh, Genesis 22. Then God said, take your son, listen to this little resonation, take your son, your only son. Do you recognize who we're talking about? Whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there in the burnt offering on the mountain where, that I will show you. The fire. And then later on it says, Isaac's going up the hill and with his dad. He's probably about the same age as David was when he um, was anointed. It says, about 15, it says, The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abram answered, I think it's up there, isn't it? God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then it says, Abram looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abram called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now you all know where that place is, don't you? You do now. Because the place where Abram was told to go was a place called Mount Moriah. And actually, if you go to Mount Moriah now, it's the Temple Mount. It's got the Dome of the Rock on the Muslim uh, Temple Dome of the Rock. And that's where God said to Abram, go and sacrifice your son. And that's where, instead of Isaac having to die, a ram was found stuck in a bush, and they sacrificed that instead. There's, there's obviously, I think David understood that's where you, that's where it's supposed to be because I think he looked forward to Jesus, who was the one and only Son, who God didn't spare. We sang it this morning. God, who God didn't spare, but but sacrificed him in our place for our sin to set us free. And and David wanted to be there. In fact, he buys a threshing floor there. Uh, he, he buys a place and says, that, you know, where the temple is. That, that, that is the place that David bought, uh, where, that, where Abraham had been, where the ram had been sacrificed. And I think for the same reason, there's this sense of he wanted to be in a place of sacrifice. He wanted to be in a place where he says, no, actually, we understand what about, about, about living a cross-shaped life. And so I think that as we move here, we want to have gospel center, but we also understand, no, we want to be at the place of sacrifice. We want to be the place where, where actually we understand what it is for, was for God to give his own son so that we respond and say, God, I'm going to keep my passion burning for you. I'm going to give all for, for you. And I think that's what, that's what David wanted to do. And so there's this um, place of sacrifice. So, so David is like, I want to have Jerusalem. I want to possess it for God. Now, interesting, when he kills Goliath, he takes the head of Goliath, it's all very gory stuff, takes the head of Goliath and sticks it on a pole outside the Jebusite stronghold of Jerusalem. Now, interestingly, Jerusalem, if you've been, has anyone been to Jerusalem? It's not really a place you go, is it? It's a bit sort of, a bit scary and there's lots of trouble going on. But I've actually been to Jerusalem and it's very, very hilly. It's basically a hill called Mount Zion, that they call it the city of David. And then next to that, there's a temple on a mount called Mount Moriah. 
and then outside uh, from that is obviously where uh, Jesus was crucified. And so on three sides, there's like, it's like a ravine. It's, it's, it's surrounded by cliffs and ravines. And what had happened is the Jebusites had had this city for 600 years. The Jews had been trying to take it for them for 600 years. Um, Joshua had tried. Joshua who first invaded the promised land. He tried. Uh, the men of Judah tried to burn the city. And the men of Benjamin had tried and burnt the city. And it's almost like that everybody had given up saying, we're going to have this place. Uh, and it was like really difficult to defend. 600 years, the Jews had been trying to get this place. And for 600 years, the Jebusites had kind of beaten them off. And so almost they were like facing this impossible challenge. They were facing this impossible challenge. To, How are you going to get this city? And, and we read it in our, in our um, uh, earlier, I think if you go back to the slide, it might help. Uh, it said the Jebusites said, you're never going to get in here. You're never going to get this city. You're never going to take this city. Um, it said it's so well defended, as it were, that even the, even the blind and the lame can keep you away. You know, you don't need a mighty army to defend this city. Even the blind and the lame can, can keep you away. And I, and I think it's interesting, isn't it, that, that it just then says in the scripture, uh, in the passage, nevertheless, David took the city. And I think it's interesting as, 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 as a church in this nation, we face loads of things that say, you're not coming in here. You can't do that. You can't do that. It feels like the church has got so weak, it's got so powerless that, you know, you, 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 that you can't take any steps forward. Because, you know, it feels like society is so much against us. It feels like, you know, in terms of if you want to tell your friends about Jesus, it feels like the, you, you get such a pushback. You know, my kids tell me at school, you know, if they mention... About kind of that they're Christians. They, they, my daughter says she gets laughed at. Uh, you know, they, there's such pushback, and there's this sense of you can never do anything. And I think what's being told, I think what we've been told as as church over the last twenty years, um, that that you never can do it. There are one or two churches that seem to break through, and everybody floods in there. And there's a great one in this town, Trinity, that where it's like it went from it can never happen. Fifteen kids. 15 uh, adults in that church building. When I was a student here 30 years ago, that, that was, an empty, was going to be an empty building. They were going to close it down. And there was this sense, I remember talking to the guy who took over from the guy who started to turn it around, a guy called Paul Harris, who I was at, I was at college with. And he said it felt like, to start with, we can never do anything. This church is never going to win. We're never going to break through. We're never going to see people saved. We're never, we're never going to grow. We're never going to make disciples. It felt like, but what happened is that, that first the guy before Paul and then Paul Harris and then Mark Bailey who leads it now, they all like said, we're going to believe God. Now those churches are really rare, aren't they? Because most churches have this kind of sense of, if only we could break through. Most churches are struggling, small. We're about, this morning, about the average size of a church in the UK. And because there's some really big ones, there's some really much, much smaller ones. And you can have this sense of we can never do it. We can never achieve anything. The things that we've, that almost as if God had put inside us like David, I want to build this great church for God, not because of my name or not because of our glory, but because we believe that we want to base it on the gospel, we want to base it on the cross of Jesus. And we want to see people catch this great story of who Jesus is. But yet that all society is saying, you can never do it. Does that track with you? Does that feel like that? You can feel like it can never happen. But I just love it because that David just says, well, nevertheless, we're going in. 
Nevertheless, we're going to take it. Nevertheless, you can say, he says, it's impossible for you to get in here. Just a few people can stop you. And, he, and it, he's, it, the scripture says, nevertheless, David came in. How did he do that? 600 years of no. And one man said, my passion is stronger. My faith in God is stronger. I believe the gospel is stronger. I believe the cross is stronger. I believe that the king of Salem, Jesus, is stronger. And we're going to take it. And we need to have that. We need to have that, yeah? And I know you, I'm not trying to hype you up. I'm trying to say for gospel reasons, we need to say, can we take the city? Can we see life change? Can we see these fill, seats filled? Can we see those seats filled? Can we see those seats filled? Oh, it's impossible. No, you can't. You're a little blind, lame, weak church. You're never going to do it. But we need to say, no, we're not going to quit believing that God can do some stuff. Are you with me? Yes, because that's what we're here for, isn't it? That's why we've turned up bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, believing God, saying, God, you can do it. Because we believe that God can do it. And so we're not doing this church just to be the convenient, oh, isn't it nice to be in the center of town? What a lovely venue. We're doing it to see these seats filled Seats filled with your neighbors and your friends and your workmates and your families who don't know Jesus, who are far from Jesus, who are lost and far away, who need to be able to say, Jesus, we love your gospel. We love your broken body. We love you poured out blood. We love your cross. We love the victory of your gospel. Don't we want to fill them with that? And they say, oh, let's get baptized. And there's like stacks and stacks and stacks. That's why we're here. That's why we're serving and that's why we're doing what we're doing. And that's why we're giving you sweets and everything because we want to say this is a place of grace. And you might get a Maltese, but better than that, you might find Jesus. That's what we're doing. And we're saying we're not going to let it go. Let me just go quick now. So nevertheless, we're going to take this city. Say to me, nevertheless. Nevertheless, we're going to take the city. Ooh, you're a bit, when I had the city, you're a bit more scared. God is still God. We've got to have that unrelenting passion. We're not going to say, oh, God, we'll settle for a smaller story and blame other people. Well, if Howard is a better leader, we'd definitely do it. If the musicians were more like Hillsong, helpful to know that they, they you know, fake it as well. <laughs> if we were more like that, then we'd do it. If we had a better, you know, we've been doing that too long. Oh, if we move from Pates, God will come. It's nothing to do with this. It's actually, do we have that unrelenting passion? God, we want to see lives change. When you see one person change, it, it's, it's the best. It's what we're doing it for. When we see our own lives change, it's the best. Let me just run through chapter 6. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to give all the stuff, but let me just run through some stuff. So what happens is, after David has captured the city of Jerusalem, he then wants to build a temple for God. The challenge is that actually he wants God's presence there. Now, does anybody know, if you know chapter 6 uh, of Samuel, does anybody know what was the symbol at that time? I've already mentioned it earlier. The symbol at that time of God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant. Let's have a picture somewhere. They've got one somewhere. This is from Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is where we all see it. It's there somewhere. Yes, here it is. There's Indiana Jones and whoever, the other guy. Yeah, they find it in a tomb in Egypt. A load of junk. But this is what it looked like. It's like this golden box that had um, two seraphs whose wings were folded in, covering their faces. And those two, where the wings touched, was called the atonement cover, which is interesting. It's like where God forgives sins. And he said, that is where I'm going to dwell. That is my throne. So almost like this 
in, in Jewish understanding was the throne of God. Now, do we know what had happened for 40 odd or 50 odd years about, the, about this box, this Ark of the Covenant? Does anyone remember when we talked earlier in, in this series what had happened to it? It gone to the Israel, the Israelites has had it, and then it had been captured by the Philistines, and they put it in the temple of this of their god, and the god fell flat on his face, and then they were thinking, "Wow, we can't keep this box," and they sent it to another town, and there's all diseases and tumors broke out, and they think, "Oh, we can't keep it," and they put it on a cart and just whipped the oxen and said, "Get go." It's like the presence of God was too powerful for the Philistines to have with them. And it says all the time that King Saul, the Saul who was king before uh, David, all the time that he was king, he never ever once looked for this ark. It says he never ever once inquired of God. Imagine being the king of a theocracy. It's It's almost like being the Archbishop of Canterbury and you never pray once. Being a church leader, never pray once. Being a Christian, you never pray once. It, it seems ridiculous. It seems incongruous. How can that happen? And, um, but yet David, but, but Saul never did. But David says, we're going to go and get this box. We're going to get the presence of God. We don't want to build a church. We don't want to build a building, a temple without God. We don't want to build a place without God. So let's just read quickly and we'll just comment on two, three things and then we'll shoot, sit down. It says, David brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. It's obviously a heavy box. No, 30,000 men. And he and his men went to Kirath Jerem in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. And then, I love this the way that the writer just puts, which is called by the name, capital N, the name of the Lord Almighty, Yahweh, who is enthroned between the cherub on the ark. They set the ark on an uncovered. They set the ark uncovered on a new cart, and brought it from the house of Abinadad, where it had been on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio. Eh, let's do that. Ahio sounds like hello, baby. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadad, were guiding the new ark with the ark of God on it, and David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord. So it's in, it's it's incongruous, isn't it? It's ridiculous that that they could go for 40, 50 years without the presence of God. But I think I've, I've been in churches, and we never must be this church, where you can carry on and you don't even know God's there or not there. Damien McGuinness, who I like to quote, who came to our Alpha meal last time, is a friend of Jonathan's and I's. He said he went, when he was come out of prison, he'd encounter God in prison. When he came out of prison, he said he went to church after church after church. And he wasn't a Christian or anything. In that sense, he just said, and God wasn't there. And then said, I came to Hope Church, Manchester, and God was there. Now, obviously, we patted ourselves on the back thinking it was all our good. It was all due to us, but we'll, we'll realize that's not a good thing in a moment. But, but the sense, we want God to be there, don't we? So, actually, when people come in here, we want God to be there. Now, we all might draw lots of different ideas what that looks like when God is there. Some of you might think, yeah, it's wild clapping. Some of you might think, yeah, we're lots of spiritual gifts. Some of you might think it's quiet, meditative prayer. But actually, you can't pin it down to anything, but God is there. We don't want to be a church, do we, where God is not there. We want, when people come, God's here. However we express it, God is here. Because there's something about the presence of God that's so much better than my preaching and Maltesers and 
lanyards and pens and all the funky stuff we've got this time. My preaching really is not one of those. Yeah, but, but it's, it's something more than that, and we don't want to do that. But what happens is really scary. It's really scary, and my father-in-law said, you can't preach about that on the first Sunday in a new venue, but I thought, no, we'll slip through quickly. It, verse 9 of 2 Samuel 6, it says this, When they came to the threshing floor of, of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God to steady it, because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of this irreverent act, and therefore God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark. Now, we could have loads of discussions, because this makes God look pretty bad, doesn't it? Like, like pretty short-tempered. A friend of mine was talking about this passage once and said, um, it says in the Bible that God's slow to anger. I wouldn't like to meet him when he's really angry then, if this, if this is slow to anger. It just seems like this guy, Uzzah, just guarding the ark on the, the cart. The oxen stumbles and it's going to fall on the ground. And he does what seems quite natural, which is to, to give God a helping hand. Yeah? And there's a quote that I found about this, and it's quite long, but I'll read it because I think it's amazing. It's from R.C. Sproul, who's a bit hardcore, but good. It says, The oxen suddenly stumbled, and the cart tottered precariously. The chest slid from its moorings and was in danger of falling into the dirt and being sullied by the mud. It's unthinkable that this precious object be desecrated by falling in the dirt. Surely Uzzah's reaction was instinctive. He did what any pious Jew would do to keep the ark from falling in the mud. He reached out his hand to steady the ark to protect the holy uh, object from falling. It was not a premeditated act of defiance towards God. It was a reflex action. From our own vantage points, it seems like an act of heroism. We think that Uzzah should have heard the voice of God shouting down from heaven, Thank you, Uzzah! God didn't do that. Instead, he killed him on the spot. What's going on? I think the interesting thing, there's loads of lessons we could learn, but, but actually the presence of God is not just something that we can manipulate, is it? God being around or being a Christian, it's not like, oh, we've got a God who we can just put him nicely in a box, something we can manipulate. And it's almost, I, I, I put a picture with a guy with a hand up. I don't think that God needs a helping hand from us. He doesn't need a helping hand from us. If we think we're going to be the ones who are going to build this thing for him, we need to understand, no, he doesn't need a helping hand from us. He doesn't need us to, to reach out our hand and say, look, I'm on the road to so, so God's, God's going to help. God's gonna, God doesn't need that. We need to understand that God is awesome and scary. R.C. Sproul goes on. It says, not only was Uzzah a Levite forbidden to touch the ark, he's forbidden even to look at it. They put the ark on a, a cart, they thought, well, this would be a convenient. This would be a nice modern way to, to get it moving. This would be a good way to get it done. We'll put it on a cart. Does anybody know how it should have been carried? On two poles. And they were never to touch it. In fact, it was meant to be covered by the tenting of the tabernacle. They were never meant to look at it. But they've got this kind of idea that God should God just should turn up when we fancy. That God should be our beck and call and do what we want. And we can align him to, to our mission and our calling and stuff. And actually, it was almost like as if Uzzah thought that, that God needed his help. So R.C. Sproul says this. The forbidden to either look at the ark, yet he touched it anyway. He stretched out his hand, placing it squarely on the ark, steadying it in place. An act of heroism? No. An act of arrogance. The sin of presumption. That God would fall without him. 
Others assume that his hand was less polluted than the earth, that it was it wasn't the ground or the but it wasn't the ground or the mud that would desecrate the ark. It was the touch of man. The earth is obedient. It does what God tells it. It obeys the laws of nature that God has established. The ground does not commit, it's pretty heavy here, cosmic treason. There's nothing spiritually unclean about the ground. God did not want his mercy seat, his throne touched by that which was contaminated by evil. That's what she was in rebellion against him. It was man's touch that was forbidden. That's scary, isn't it? And we can feel that, well, we'll just work along with God. But unless we understand the gospel, unless we understand the broken body and the shed blood, unless we understand the, the, the sacrificed lamb, we can't come near God at all. God is not going to turn up when we, we whistle. We need to understand that, that he's going to build what he's going to build, and we need to do it properly. And so let's just, just finish with this. It says in uh, verse uh, 9 of chapter 6, it says, David was afraid of the Lord that day. Sound a good idea, doesn't it? <laughs> and he says, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take up the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he put it in the house of Obed-Edom, a Philistine. And as this sense where he feels like I'm, I'm here to build a, a, my passion, my unrelenting passion is to build a, a, a place where God dwells. But, but he needed to understand that, that it just couldn't be all, tick all the right boxes. Let's get the newfangled car. Let's get the new technology. Let's get the right stuff in place. And God's going to build it. He needed to understand now this is God Almighty. And he said, it's too scary. And at that point, I think he almost quit. He almost quit. He thought, this is too much for me. This is too scary for me. That God's too big for me. How, how can we ever fulfill what he's called to do? Let me just read a quote from Bill Hybels and then a passage and we're done. Bill Hybels planted a church in Chicago, started in a theater about this size. He says, almost all churches have one thing in common. When they first start out, they first start out with sky-high ambition. We're not just going to impact our community or our city or our country. They cheer, we're going to change the world. They pray big prayers, they give big dollars, they volunteer big time hours, and they believe that God is quite capable of doing absolutely anything through them. That is until real life kicks in. Over time, church leaders and their people alike are dismayed to learn just how much energy and enthusiasm it takes the machinery of a growing church to keep chugging along. Slowly but surely, that God can do anything feeling fades. Bold steps quit being taken. Bold prayers quit getting prayed. And the beginning of the end is near. If we don't get hold of God, if we don't understand he's the awesome, mighty king of heaven, he's the holy one, that we can't walk in sin and casualness, then, then we're, we're just going to play the games. We're going to realize that nothing's going to get done. Nothing's going to get changed. That, that we're just going to go through the motions. And it feels like for David, it's like almost like that had happened. Well, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. My dream's not going to come through. I'm just going to quit and settle for something less and blame other or someone. But it doesn't stop there. Let me just read and comment and we're done. 
Now, King David was told that the, the Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom. He's obviously in his garage. This box is in Obed-Edom's garage. And Obed-Edom's house gets really blessed. I don't know how that works for you, but you can fill in the gaps. Blessed, blessed Obed-Edom and everything he had because of the ark of the Lord. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city with rejoicing. And those who were carrying the ark, they did it right this time, when every time they'd taken six steps, they sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. They did a 12-mile... Six steps. It's a 12-mile journey, and they go... Stop, worship, sacrifice. And they do that for 12 miles. And they bring the ark in... I say, we're going to do this right. This is going to cost us sacrifice. If we're going to go, if this, if we're going to go on any journey with God, it's going to cost us a sacrifice. And it sometimes feels like that in a church plan. And it's six steps, and we're already, it's costing me. What am I, how many times am I on the rotor? Fifteen times? Please, Lord Jesus, grow this church to get me off the rotor. You know, it feels like sometimes it's a journey. Like you do f- six steps with your neighbors, and then they say, I'm not coming on Alpha. And it, but it's, it's great, isn't it? It says, while those were carrying the ark, they're taking six, six steps, they sacrificed a, a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, in other words, he's in a boxer shorts. David danced before the Lord with all his might. And while, Israel, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and uh, sound of a trumpets, as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, uh, uh, daughter of Saul, that's David's wife, watched from the window. And she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in his heart. But it says, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in the place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. It's almost like we got there. Now, we need to be, there's a song, isn't there, by, we're not going to sing it, but there's a song by um, Matt Redman called, I'll Become Even More. Is it by Matt Redman? I'll Become Even More Undignified Than This. And it's about like, Dancing around. Now, the picture is almost like, uh, imagine that we won the World Cup. You'd have to really, really stretch. Maybe the Rugby World Cup if you go back a while. Imagine we won the World Cup, and suddenly there's like, in the crowd is the Queen, yeah? And she's kind of in um, a leotard, let's say. Well, let's, I didn't know what to say. I'm just making this up. I've got no notes. <laughs> she's in a leotard, and she's leaping around, and you just see her leaping around, and Prince Philip is like... Stupid woman, where's your dignity? But like, it's almost like she got it, thought, no, victory. And when we come here, it's great when Vic says, come on, everybody. But actually, we need to say, I'm going to, no, let's not. We're not going to strip down to our boxers, but we're going to emotionally say, I'm not bothered what anybody thinks, because actually, if we're going to take any steps in this journey, we better be a worshiping community. So we're going to do that now. I'm going to pray. Why don't you stand with me? Jesus. Jesus, we feel the same passion in us as David felt. And I pray, Lord, for you, by your spirit right now that you'd come 
and you'd fan again, as Paul says, into flame the gift of God in us, that you'd fan again into flame that passion that says, we want to see your house built. We want to worship at your throne. We want people to get saved. We want your name to be glorified. We want to be the the place that loves your gospel, the broken bread and the poured out wine. We want to be those that that understand the amazing sacrifice of your only son, that we, we take steps in worship because we are an awesome God and we say it's going to cost us sacrifice, but we're not going to give up. We're not going to give up. We're not going to settle for that slow, incremental death that says it's never going to happen, that God can't do it, that we can't change things. Lord, we say we want to be stupid. We want to say we want to change Cheltenham. We want to change the world. We want to plant churches across the, across the UK. We want to send people. We want to pour thousands of pounds, millions of pounds into stuff. And people say you're stupid. But we say, no, we're going to become even more undignified than this to see your kingdom come. Lord, we say, pour it on us, Lord. We say, let your passion in us be unrelenting. Lord, we're not going to dredge it up from our own personality and character. We thank you that it's a gift from you. It's by your grace that you pour into your church. And I say, Lord, give us that passion. Lord, we delight when we give away a goodie bag, but we say, Lord, we want to dip some people in your glory and grace. See baptisms. We want to see people come to, uh, to hear Limvoy and, and say, Jesus is here. I want to follow him. Guys who are Muslims who play football with us say, why not, Lord? All the bad press. Lord, we say, God, you could change it. They're here for us to reach them. So we say, Lord, we commit ourselves to you as we sing about for your glory to see your house built. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's uh, worship. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.